there aren't enough scientists in the field out in the lay public um, talking about microbiome as domain experts. And that's probably the biggest problem because there isn't enough balance, especially during COVID. I mean, it, there was a lot of just, you know, the role of the gut and COVID and all this sort of stuff. And there's fact and there is fiction. If you have all of those exposures, you get all of these different types of bacteria colonizing your gut and tickling your immune cells and educating them so that your immune cells don't react to self. So how is it that our, our immune system tolerates these trillions of bacteria, which our immune system evolved to eradicate, you know, but yet it tolerates the microbes in our gut. That's an evolved system and that's through educating the immune system. Welcome back to another episode of The Proof. I'm Simon Hill, your show host, and today's guest is Suzanne Devkoda, PhD. Suzanne's resume is off the charts. She has an undergraduate degree in biology and chemistry, a master's in nutrition science, and a PhD in molecular metabolism and nutrition. On top of that, she's the director of microbiome research at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. Her lab studies the role of the gut microbiome in inflammatory and metabolic diseases originating in the GI tract. In this conversation, we retrace important facts about the microbiome, what's behind our rapidly growing understanding of the microbiome, whether the microbiome is associated with certain conditions or causes them, how our microbiome could affect food allergies, intolerances, IBD, and obesity, and general tips for improving the composition of our microbiome, and plenty more. Before we get into the episode, a quick reminder to please subscribe on YouTube Apple, Spotify, or whatever platform you're tuning in from. Your support is greatly appreciated and enormously important to this show finding its way into the ears of more people. And now, my conversation with Suzanne Devkoda, PhD. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a longtime listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high fiber, plant rich diet for good long term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients 
and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains 8 key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA Omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. So you're based at Cedars Sinai, yeah. right? That's mm -hmm. here in, in Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah. In, okay. uh, what? This is the West Side, but over in West Hollywood. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for making the trip down. Uh, and you have a lab there, yes. I believe. So maybe we can start here by learning about the lab, what you've set up there, and the kind of questions that you and your team are, are interested in exploring. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we're a gut microbiome research lab. My background's actually in nutrition um, and uh, uh, more traditional nutrition. And I got into the microbiome field really when the microbiome field was going through an inflection point where um, people were more, it was more accessible to researchers, both from a cost sequencing perspective and so on. And so we, um, I got into this during graduate school, during my PhD, and um, really just curious about the interaction between certain dietary components and the gut microbiome, asking really simple questions that today, you know, it's gotten much more complex. Um, but it that was my hook. Like we saw some really interesting, um, you know, data coming out regarding foods, fats, sugars, proteins that we were eating that were affecting the gut microbiome. So that kind of hooked me into the field and I switched from more traditional nutrition to gut gut microbiome and gut health and nutrition. And I continue that through my postdoc and into my lab now, which I've had for about eight years at Cedars. And um, half the lab stud still studies the role of diet on gut health and the gut microbiome composition, both in terms of how the foods we eat can promote disease through changing the microbiome, but also promote health through changing the microbiome. The other half of my lab um, has evolved more on the human side. It's not really diet related at all, but we study inflammatory bowel diseases, so Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, um, and, and metabolic diseases, so obesity we also study. Um, so we get human specimens from surgical cases um, and from bariatric surgery. And we're looking at actually the interaction between bacteria and fat tissue directly, cell-to-cell -cell interactions. And we're finding some interesting things there in those disease contexts. So half the lab still diet microbiome and half the lab is more disease pathogenesis. Okay. Well, it's a bit for us to explore there, but yeah, it sounds right. good. Um, that inflection point, how has, I guess, our appreciation uh, for the role of the microbiome in health changed from sort of prior to that inflection point, where was the field at with regards to what the microbiome was doing in our body and how it was affecting our physiology and, and health outcomes. And I guess, how has that understanding sort of evolved or progressed at a high level? Yeah. 
I mean, back the, we're talking like 2007, right? I mean, it was no one was really talking. Which in is the, not in the, that long ago. It was not that long ago. So it just shows you how quickly things have evolved right. and how people's perceptions and how they think, at least from my chair, people are much more knowledgeable today and care a lot more about where their food comes from and what it, how it's you know interacting with their body. And people are more interested in primary literature. And so I think people have gotten, a, you might have a different perspective, I don't know, on people have become a little more sophisticated in their at least understanding and desire to learn more about the body. So, but in 2007, the microbiome was still, even as in the scientific realm, a very new endeavor, you know, um, and we as scientists didn't really know what to do with it. So we weren't, you know, the earliest research was from Jeff Gordon's lab at WashU, and he really was a pioneer of making kind of the first connections between things like obesity and diet and the microbiome. And he did the first study that showed um, that if you take uh, the microbiome from an obese person and put it into a mouse, they'll start eating more and gain weight. Do you know? Fascinating. And I mean, really simple experiments to do, but the data was like, oh my gosh, this microbiome thing is, you know, something to it. But even with data like that, the public wasn't still as aware of that research right and and how big of a role did sort of instrumentation technology play like when when were we able to kind of look in there and see these microbes and see what they were doing and the metabolites they were producing and all that sort of stuff yeah it it actually the field was created because of the technology so we've microbiology is an old field and that's you know you're growing bugs on a plate and in the microscope, and we still do that, but it's a slow and laborious process, and you can only scale so much in that realm. Um, Really, with the human genomes being sequenced and all the sequencing efforts that went into studying the human genome, those are the same tools that were applied to the microbiome. And so it was really a sequencing revolution that allowed us to now sequence at scale, you know, this whole other genome in in our guts. Um, so the tools was really the thing, um, and still is the thing. Um, but it was so expensive to do sequencing. I think it was, I remember when I first started to do a handful of samples, it was like $14,000. Um, and, and that's not even to get any statistical significance. Um, now the same amount of samples would cost, you know, $200. So that second inflection point was just making it cheaper. And so more labs got into it. So we've we've learned a lot, and often, I know if, speaking for myself personally, the more I learn, the more I realize I don't know. <laughs> yeah. and, and so I wonder, in this field of science, the more that is being under, like discovered over the the last decade or fifteen years or so, is that the general feeling that there still is a long way to go? Yeah, I would say so. Um, I mean, that feeling like the more you learn, the you realize the less you know is kind of actually true in every scientific field. I was just at an immunology meeting, and they're still discovering new cell types and subtypes of subtypes that are involved in processes. So there's still so much that we don't know. Um, but the microbiome being one of the newest kind of fields in biology suffers from that even more so. Um, I think as someone who was brought up in the field and saw where we started and where we've come, it's not as daunting to me when I look at it. I can see how things have evolved. But if you're just getting into the field now, um, or you have a great scientific question, you want to add a microbiome analysis, 
um, I think it can be really daunting because you have to now catch up with this huge body of literature that's often conflicting. You might have a few more blind spots. Yeah. Um, so there's still a lot we don't know, and that's the truth, but that's what keeps it exciting. Right. I guess that's where collaboration between scientists who are sort of domain-specific experts exactly. like you is, is probably important. And I know I'm just seeing just here, Christopher Gardner, mm -hmm. microbiome's not really his background, but then he's right. teamed up with like the Sonnenbergs. Yeah, exactly. Um, to do some interesting work. Yeah. So this, I guess, topic, and you, I do agree with you with what you said earlier about people are, are, are increasingly wanting information to take control of their health. What can we do to better our health, health span? And um, so many chronic diseases have kind of been normalized in our society. So what can we do to kind of change our course through our life? And so this conversation about gut health and microbiome has sort of catapulted into the the whole wellness dialogue. Um, how, do, how do you feel we're going, I guess, in terms of mainstream media and on social media and even on podcasts, when you're tuning in as a domain-specific expert, are you thinking that generally the there's a pretty good job being done of conveying the research and what you see within the field, or is there frustrations? <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of frustrations. There's a lot. But um, it kind of depends on, and this is true not just for microbiome, who it is, what the agenda is and what, you know, uh, there aren't enough scientists in the field out in the lay public um, talking about microbiome as domain experts. And that's probably the biggest problem because there isn't enough balance, I think, there. Um, I'd say, you know, a lot of people get it. There's many people who will get it 90% right, you know, and then make a leap for the last 10%. Um, and then other people, especially during COVID, I mean, it, there was a lot of just, you know, the role of the gut and COVID and all this sort of stuff. And there's fact and there is fiction. And it, it, that's just the nature of the beast, you know. But on the one hand, I applaud people for, wanting to, you know, jump in and try to understand it and try to help people because the scientists aren't really getting in social media and trying to help people. So others are trying to fill in the gap. Um, and I think it's just reflective of people care. Um, you know, my issue is when people prey on fears um, and will make statements that people are afraid that they're creating long-term damage in their bodies. When the reality is our body is hugely resilient. Our bodies, can, especially our gut microbiome, is hugely resilient. And we can talk about artificial sweeteners because that's been a big topic. It's on my list. <laughs> yeah. But that's another, you know, we'll get to that. But it's another instance where, like, you know, it's it's really about maintaining balance. And people want to be on the far ends of the spectrum because I think you get a lot more attention if you push on the ends. But the reality is the body has evolved to be the way it is. And it responds to balance and responds to consistency. And it's not rocket science. And the same is true for the microbiome. And there are ways to nurture it. And it's about listening to your body. And it takes work. And people don't really want to do the work to listen to their own body. Um, and you know, take clues from that. They want someone else to tell them what to do. And so that's really where my issue comes in when we're all already equipped to take control of our health. Right. I think to kind of preface this conversation as we kind of launch into some of these topics, I'm, I'm conscious that even though this is a widely spoken about topic, maybe sometimes the definitions are, are lost or we need a bit of a, a reminder. So 
that word microbiome that is going to come up a lot. What do we actually mean um, when we're using that word? Yeah, it's you're. It's thank you for asking because it is important to recenter ourselves. Um, so the word microbiome, what it te- when we use it in the field, means all the bacteria, all the all the organisms, fungi, viruses, bacteria, all all the living microorganisms in our in and on our body. So not just gut, but skin, mouth, all those. So our collective bodies, microorganisms. Um, and their gene content. Um, if we're just referring to the identification of the bacteria, we call it microbiota. Um, so this is just a distinction, but microbiome is kind of an all-encompassing term we kind of use, and that's okay. It's, it's not necessarily wrong, but it's. I, I do want to make the point that's not just the bacteria. It's everything else too. Why has the conversation, I guess, narrowed in mostly on the bacteria and specifically, I guess, bacteria in the colon. Yeah. Um, you know, you hear about 38 trillion bacteria around that that number. Why the focus specifically on on that type of microbe and not necessarily the others? Yeah. I mean, the bacteria are the most numerous of the microbiome. So they make up the vast majority of that population. Um, and the colon is the highest density of them. So you're really, a lot of people started st- in the field studying the colon, colonic microbiome because that's where most bugs are. And that's, so it's like looking under a lamppost, that's where everything is. Um, but we've now branched out much, you know, into other parts of the gut and in other low biomass areas now that we have tools to do it. But it's really just because of density and numerically they are, but they're the smallest. So fungi are like 30 times bigger. So if it's interesting if you can visualize an ecosystem in your gut, you have a ton of bacteria, but you could have a huge fungi, you know, like interspersed throughout them. So Size might matter, numbers might matter. We actually still don't know. Okay. Is yeah. there fields of microbiology that are looking at fungi mm-hmm. and archaea and all that sort oh, of stuff? Oh, yeah. yeah. There's the microbiome. So that's all the fungi. And uh, there's the virome. So mm-hmm. the, the viral, uh, both the, the external viruses, eukaryotic viruses that live in us, and then the phage, the viruses that infect bacteria. So, there's a lot going on down there. <laughs> it's, it's a whole community, yeah. So are, are you mostly interested in the bacteria that is in the colon being part of the large intestine or also sort of more proximal in the small intestine? Yeah, we, we study the whole GI tract um, because we're looking at things like bariatric surgery that is a small bowel surgery. Um, the in Crohn's disease, the type of Crohn's we're looking at is small bowel. So we do a lot of small bowel research, but when we we also rely on stool samples a lot, and that's pretty much reflective of the colon. So we, you know, it's important to look throughout because there are regional differences. Yeah. So those differences is that in the behavior? Like, let's say we were able to go down, sort of scuba diving down in there, and right. <laughs> we zoomed right in, yeah. and we were observing or interviewing these microbes in different sections and sort of trying to find out what they're doing, yeah. we, would, we would see differences. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I teach this a lot in, in the graduate school. So how, because we're, we're born without, I mean, we're sterile in the womb. And so our first, ex, we have a very blank slate gut, right, when we come out. And it starts to populate as we eat and, and introduce, introduce to new food. So how do the microbes choose to go and, and take up root in different parts of the gut? And in part, you know, it's symbiotic relationship evolved since we were human, you know, started walking. And um, 
it's bi-directional, right? So microbes have taken over roles in our body that we used to be able to do, but then they could do them. So we lost the ability. We devolved those enzymes. Sort of so, outsourced it. Yeah, essentially to our microbiome. Um, so it's this beautiful relationship. So in part, those microbes will colonize where our body can take up, like B vitamins, for example. We have bacteria that produce B vitamins. It doesn't make sense for them to be colonized in parts of the gut where we don't have the ability to take the B vitamins up. So um, there is form and function, right? So uh, our gut determined where the microbes live and our microbes determined what functions are carried out in the, in the GI tract. So the colon, though, is like a big fermentation vat. Fermentation of fibers primarily take place in the colon almost exclusively. If it starts to occur in the small bowel, that can cause things like bloating and small bowel overgrowth and things that you, symptoms of IBS. SIBO. SIBO would be, yeah. So there are things that should stay restricted to some parts of the intestine and the body maintains that pretty naturally, but there's a lot of things that can cause perturbations. Right. So that fermentation occurring in the small intestine where it shouldn't be occurring, is that because of migration of bacteria that, that takes up residence in the small intestine that shouldn't be there? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And there's a whole variety of reasons why that could happen. Um, and it can it can be transient sometimes. Um, it can be a dietary change. It can be antibiotics. And the repopulation was not what it should be. It can be the sphincter between your, you know, between the junction between your small bowel and um, just kind of like an acid reflux. You can have more permissive flow up. Um, so it's, it's kind of person dependent. Right. And so where do we... You said you mentioned there we're born sort of without a microbiome as such, and then it rapidly develops and mm-hmm. takes shape. Yeah, and you know I, I hear um, some people talking about the importance of kind of setting the microbiome in the early parts of someone's life, and then you hear other parts of the conversation where people talk about being able to rapidly change and alter the the microbiome. So if someone's kind of confused by that, because they could seem at a high level as contradictory statements. One is in the first three years of life, you're given your microbiome and that's kind of it for you to sort of play around with and navigate um, the world. And then the other is, no, you can do things with your lifestyle that will really change it. So yeah, how do you reconcile that? Yeah, it's a good question. So the early life microbiome period is, and there's a lot of data on this, is like very dynamic. I mean, you'll see huge shifts um, in a baby's microbiome as they have different exposures. Exposures that as an adult, if you saw the same exposures, would be like a blip, wouldn't really do much. But because the gut is, when a baby's born, their immune system of the gut is really, you know, naive, um, everything, you know, your gut's the largest immune organ, endocrine organ, all that's naive though. And one of the reasons we have a microbiome is to educate that immune system and the physiology of the gut. And so there's a lot of, you know, getting to know each other in the early days that determine, um, you know, what your microbiome imprint is going to be long-term. And I'd say, you know, it's more dynamic than the first three years. The first three years is is a very dynamic period, but it's It'll shift a lot, probably through puberty, so about 13, 14. Um, And then after that point, if we looked at a curve, right, it would be like this up until like puberty, and then it would look kind of like a pretty smooth curve. But if you zoomed in 
to a one-week period, you would see perturbations, right? And that could be because you were stressed or you traveled or you changed your diet or whatever. But on the whole, it's pretty constant. Um, and there's a lot of data showing, yes, within 24 hours, you, your microbiome, you can rapidly change it. But it often rebounds and goes back. As a baby, it can shift and not go back. Um, so you can really push push the system as a baby um, and I actually think that's one of the most interesting areas of microbiome research right now is the early life period, because there is, I think, an opportunity to um, colonize the gut in ways that will be favorable later in life. We just don't know all, all of that yet. So when you say, I guess, perturbations, um, what are we talking about? Are we talking about in the first few years of life, that's where the sort of specific types of bacteria species that you're going to have they're there for for your entire life but you can kind of modulate the balance of those to a degree later in life or or is there the opportunity later in life to actually introduce new species yeah it's more uh, it's a good question um there's a lot of factors in that first three-year period that will determine some of your keystone species that you carry through life. And it can be things like breastfeeding versus bottle. Um, and it can be the type of food you're weaned onto. Where in the world do you live? What foods are you eating in that first period? That can introduce microbes that are, are ones that we'll see as adults still. Um, but it's not... It's not, you're not totally stuck with that. There are, like, I mean, people who take antibiotics, right? They get repopulated, but they often will get repopulated with the same types of bugs again. I think when we think about as an adult, like probiotics and things like that, can we expect an externally introduced set of organisms to take root in an adult gut? Um, it's actually quite unlikely because a lot of those niches are filled unless we're missing something and we know we're missing it. As a baby or as a toddler or a child, there's still a lot of available you know, niches in the gut to be occupied. Um, but as you get older, they get filled in and you know, it's kind of a survival of the fittest and that's what you got. So it's much harder to perturb that system. But if you have taken, a, you're on a medication or it's an antibiotic and you've eliminated something, actually eliminated it um and you sequence your microbiome and you know it's, it's gone well then now that niche is available and you can repopulate okay but you got to know that it's missing right just taking a random probiotic mm. may not do anything right. there's no place for those to live i want to come back to that at some point put okay. a pin in that if we talk about okay. personalized nutrition and yeah. microbiome testing and and whatnot and the part about sort of the microbiome rapidly altering you know, in a 24-hour period, let's say an adult changes their diet and there's studies reporting rapid alterations. Um, coming back to what you said earlier about evolving with the microbiome, is from an evolutionary point of view, to kind of make sense of that, have we outsourced these functions to the microbiome so that we can adapt quickly to different diets? Is that is that why? That's an interesting concept. Um we, I don't know that it was in order to adapt to different diets. I think, so the evolutionary question is one of my favorite topics in, in this field um, because, and I've been having a lot of conversations about this lately, because we are, our genes, our, our body's genes are still stuck 
in hunter-gatherer times. They're really not yet adapted to this modern lifestyle, which is really a, a product of the last hundred years, right? Genes take a long, long, long time to evolve. And so it's not logical to think that our bodies have evolved in step with our lifestyle. Our microbiome, however, is in this intermediate space where it evolves, it can evolve very rapidly. And so I've you know, I talk about the microbiome as a biosensor of our external environment. And so if we look at changes in our microbiome, we can get cues as to what's going on in the environment. So if we go back in time and go as our, in our hunter-gatherer days where everything is kind of our genes and our lifestyle and everything's in concordance, um, we had a certain microbiome that was adapted to those types of foods, these really dense fibers, fibers that we don't see today. And if you look at populations that still eat and live the same way and we compare them, a lot of Justin Sonnenberg's work and others, we've, I'm sure you're familiar with the concept, we've lost some of our microbes pretty much permanently. And so is that a good thing? Is that just natural adaptation to our current lifestyle? Um, you know, it, it could very, I don't think it's necessarily bad sometimes to lose some of our old bugs. That's just our way to adapt. Right. They might be serving a role that we no longer need. Yeah. Exactly. And, but we don't, we don't, we've only, the data has only shown us that we've lost them. We actually don't know what is then the, is it a bad consequence or an adaptive consequence? How would you test that? <laughs> it's a, it is, it is really, it's really tough. I mean, you would have to almost get like, um, microbiomes from populations that are still, you know, uh, eating in the native way. Right. And, try to do like a fecal transplant in, right. you know, a modern living person, you know, um, in a very different lifestyle and, you know, see if it causes problems, you know, I mean, this is a study you can never really do, but you could maybe do it in mice. And I think some people sort of dabbled in that, but, um, I have a colleague who works in a, uh, in the populations in the Amazon where they've not seen any, no white people ever. And they'll go immerse themselves in, in these groups for a month at a time. And my question to her was, did your microbiome change? Did you measure yourself before and after being immersed in the population? And she said, we were really disappointed. Our microbiome did not change at all. So it, it's likely if they stayed there for six months or a year, there'd be some shifts. But, you know, we joke a lot about, um, we meaning my colleagues and I, like, you know, we should just send people to parts of the world where they can just immerse themselves in a more native microbiome. A microbiome holiday. And, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and get reconstitute with our native microbes, but it's not that simple. You know, there's been a long adaptation and we don't really know what the consequence mm -hmm. of that is. Okay. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, InsideTracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, 
free testosterone, and total testosterone before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. So how would you... I guess what do we what do we understand today about what constitutes a healthy microbiome? Yeah, that's the million dollar question. Um, we still don't know what a healthy microbiome is, um, and yet it's very easy for us to make claims about what's unhealthy, um, even as scientists, you know, in diseases and things like that. Um, what we have done, I think, to to get around that is we use each person as their own control. So where they started from and where they've move to given a different, a certain intervention or observation over time. Um, it's really hard to do cross-sectional studies across populations and make conclusions about what's healthy um, because everyone is so different in terms of their microbiome. So we know that there, we know what pathogens are, you know, we know that there's C. diff and we know there's certain bacteria that consistently are involved in, in disease processes. And if you have an overabundance of them, that may not be a good thing. Um, but in some people it's completely normal. So it's really hard to tell. Um, but there are, you know, generally we know that we have firmicutes and bacteroides and those are the main populations and that we all, will, that will make up, it's almost like a 50, 50 mix, let's say those two. And then everything else is sort of smaller populations. And you kind of want to see certain, consistencies in your microbiome but it's that's such a crude description that if again you zoom in you'll see little blips that could be cause alarm in one person and be totally normal in another so i don't have a good answer for you makes it hard to do microbiome testing then yeah and give someone some sort of information they can do anything with yeah i i talk a lot on this topic yeah Um, because it's a tough one it's there's so many at-home microbiome tests these days um and I don't think we should stop 
making these tests or innovating on these tests. I think there's a future for them. It's just, I just gave a whole lecture on this a couple weeks ago, but, um, and I won't go into much of the details, but there's not very much transparency. Is that available online or anything? Um, no, it's not okay. available online. Um, but I, I gave a talk at a, at an okay. integrative health. Well, you can give us it, the synopsis. Yeah. It's, it's, it's mainly that, okay. If you were to take your stool sample and send it to five different companies, you'll get five different results. And the reason is because there's, they're all using different methods of analysis, both in terms of how they sequence and how they analyze the data. And it's not, you don't really know often how they're doing it. And that can make a big difference in the data interpretation of what you can expect to get back. Um, is there a gold standard? Again, it depends on, on the question. So if it's a stool sample, you know, a metagenomic sequencing is kind of what we do as a gold standard. There's still some issues with that as well, but metagenomic sequencing will, will give you a lot more information Right. You know, and so the bacteria that's that's in the stool is highly correlated with what's in the colon. It, with the colon, yeah, I would say yes, but not anywhere else. Okay. Yeah. Where did the kind of concept or idea of diversity come from? So there's there's research, uh, Rob Knight's work that has looked at, and I know you'd be familiar with this, but just for the listeners to refresh them, it was looking at. Um, the sort of diversity of someone's microbiome and the amount of plants in their diet. And it didn't matter the type of diet that people were eating didn't matter yeah. the label at all, right. omnivorous, whatever, but what seemed to associate with diversity was plant diversity in the diet. Um, and a lot has, I guess, been made of that, but I guess underpinning that is first the assumption that diversity is really important. So where, what does that actually mean diversity and is it important? Yeah. Diversity is probably the one metric in the microbiome field that everyone looks at and everyone kind of points to as more diversity being good and less diversity being bad or loss of diversity being bad, quote unquote. Um, and yeah, a lot of this was pioneered by Rob Knight's group. And it's the concept is the more different types of bacteria that you have, the more essential functions can be carried out by your gut. And also there's a lot of like redundancy in your microbiome to a degree. And there's nuances there we don't need to go into, but there's redundancy. So if you were to take a new drug or change your diet and it caused a dropout of some of your bacteria, the more diversity you have theoretically would give you a better chance of still being able to carry out those essential functions because it's not just one bug, one function, that would be evolutionarily unfavorable. Um, and so the reason is that you can still, there's balance where if one bug carrying out that same function drops out, there's another bug that can pick up, you know, the slack that that's kind of where the concept of diversity comes from. It's an evolutionary based term that applies in human, you know, in, in mammalian scales, but also, um, in bacterial scales as well. Yeah. I kind of. Whenever I think about that concept, I'm not sure if this is a good analogy, but I think of like a functioning city and having um, lots of people, a diverse population, different genders and people with different cultural backgrounds, and they're all able to contribute mm -hmm. to a better yeah. functioning society Absolutely. environment. Yeah, it, that's a great analogy. Yeah. Um, okay. So what are these microbes? You've, you've gone over a few things, but... 
how are these microbes interacting with our the host biology and affecting our health and how do we kind of pass the whole correlation versus causation piece and and whether the kind of microbiome composition is directly contributing to certain pathologies or whether it's just um an association yeah Wow, there's a lot in that question. It's sort of like where, okay, where, let's do, start you, with, where do you let, begin? Let's you know? start with with what we think, how we think the microbiome is actually affecting yeah. our health, and then we can perhaps talk about the correlation sure. versus causation yeah. piece. So, I mean, I think it's very important in, in, the, in host health, but I think there's probably a hierarchy in terms of where it's the most directly impacting. So I think there are some conditions where the microbiome is a primary driver or influence. And then there's other conditions where it's secondary or tertiary to another, to a more, you know, bigger impacting factor. So in the gut, um, it, there's a, so much compelling data showing that the gut might, for many disease processes, whether it's IBD, Crohn's colitis, IBS, um, celiac is still, the jury's still out. There isn't a lot of data on that. Um, but, uh, um, uh, functional issues, you know, bloating, gas, diarrhea, all that, we know those have a huge microbial influence on those things. And I think that's fairly und- indisputable because the highest density in the gut, therefore, you know, gut diseases would be the logical place to go where it starts to get murky is when you start going outside the gut. And for example, an area that it may be secondary is the gut brain interactions, right? Um, there you don't, there are some studies maybe saying bacteria can get to the brain. I'm not sure that that's true. Bacterial metabolites produced in the gut can leave the gut and circulate in the body. And there's a lot of research showing that, um, metabolites or, you know, the chemicals produced by the bacteria can leave the gut and go and circulate and influence distant sites, including the brain and the liver and, um, fat tissue and, and things like that there might be something to so when you say good. secondary you I, I just want to kind of throw this back to you to to make sure i'm understanding we're saying here it's it's not necessarily the primary the cause of that pathology but it could be amplifying or contributing yes. to the process that's what i mean yeah right. so like with um with metabolic diseases right do I think there will ever be a case where the microbiome is responsible for someone gaining weight or losing weight or no, I don't. I think diet and exercise and the factors that we've been studying for ages will always be the primary drivers, but the microbiome is like, can tune that, right? And your composition can either ampl- you know, amplify or blunt one of those particular factors. Um, so, and that's where I get cautious with the overhyping often of the field is when people say this causes that, or this is, you know, and I think it's really distinguishing, you know, the microbiome, yes, could very well be involved, but it's probably not driving. It's working in synergy with something else. And what is that something else? Right. Yeah. It's important to, I guess, understand that hierarchy Yeah. and then be able to prioritize from, from there. Okay. So does food allergies, does that fall into the, the first bucket of primary? Yeah, yeah. I actually, I, I do think that um, there, there is, and it's, it's a, in my, the way I look at it, it's primary but indirect. And so, going back to the early life microbiome, I talked about how your gut is the largest 
immune organ in the body. So there's a lot of immune education that occurs in the gut. And food allergies are obviously being first stimulated by your GI tract or being received by your GI tract. Um, and so if in early life you are colonized appropriately with diverse bacteria, you're exposed to a diversity of environmental exposures, which is kind of what drives population of diversities, diverse bacteria in the gut. What would that kind of look like? Um, it would be pets, mm -hmm. living with pets. It would be playing outside, you know, having time to interact with other kids, other adults, you know, it's exposure. Um, and COVIDs are going to be a really interesting, you mm. know, experiment in what happens five years from now or 10 years from now with those kids that were- That exposure probably dropped off a bit. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And so uh, if you have all of those exposures, you get all of these different types of bacteria colonizing your gut and tickling your immune cells and educating them so that your immune cells don't react to self. So how is it that our, our immune system tolerates, you know, these trillions of bacteria, which our immune system evolved to eradicate, you know, pathogens, but yet it tolerates the microbes in our gut. That's an evolved system and that's through educating the immune system. So you can imagine if in early life you didn't, you missed something there, or there wasn't something that that got educated in the right way. Now you introduce something totally new that sets off that system that wasn't properly educated. So I think it's not the bacteria, you know, reacting to the food and causing some antigen production. I think it's the bacteria at some critical developmental window didn't educate the immune system into self versus non-self in the right way. And do you feel it's possible to re-educate later in life or is there a win a critical window where that immune system response is a bit more malleable yeah that's a good question i honestly don't know we're um, not there yet yeah i don't know um because i bet there's I, people with food allergies maybe yeah. fodmap intolerances that are listening and perhaps autoimmune conditions or autoimmune conditions in their yeah. family who are listening to this thinking I wonder if there's anything I can do here. I know. So, I mean, there's certain things that are genetic based that will have nothing to do with the microbiome, like celiac. That's you have a genetic mutation and you cannot tolerate the, the gliadin and the gluten. So there's no um, microbiome or immune therapy that will kind of correct that. You have to modify the diet. Um, things that they're also adult developed food allergy, you know, lactose intolerance tends to occur later in life. Um, and even with the kids who have certain food allergies, there's a process you can go through to re, you know, titrate in these little amounts. It's a pretty laborious process, but you can gain tolerance for certain things again. Um, and you can do that independent of the microbiome. So there's some suggestion, you know, that you can, but, you know, I think the jury's still out on how exactly that happens and, and how you do it. Right. So what's happening within the microbiome where someone is experiencing FODMAP sensitivity intolerance. So they're, they're getting, you know, bloating and, and gas from these certain types of sugars that are making their way down into the, the large intestine and, and kind of fermenting. Why, what would someone's microbiome perhaps look like that's experiencing that versus someone who doesn't? Yeah. It's a bit tricky. I, so it, those who are in the IBS, the irritable bowel syndrome space, really study this deeply. I'm not in that particular space. I study more the inflammatory conditions. Um, but 
it can be a combination of small bowel overgrowth. So you're actually getting bacteria, like I mentioned earlier, fermenting in the small bowel when they shouldn't be, you know, they should be fermenting in the gut. Um, but even if you ferment in the gut, that can cause discomfort as well and a lot of other problems. Um, and so what is likely happening is you, your composition of microbes is has a, a higher proportion of these bacteria that really love these FODMAP, these oligosaccharides in the diet. And you might have more of them than the next person. So it's probably a compositional change there. So it's it's like over-fermentation? Because some fermentation would would occur normally, right, yeah. to produce short-chain fatty acids. Sure, yeah. Okay. But it's these, there's, there's certain food types that are that microbes really like to sort of break down. Um, and people who consume like a lot of sugar alcohols often, it's kind of those types of, it's these kind of polyols that you, you see and microbes really like them. Um, and so the idea is if you stop eating them, and this is true for any dietary component, if you stop eating that component of the diet, you almost can kill off those starve bugs. Them. You starve them, yeah. Right. And you reduce their numbers. You may not get rid of them totally, but you can reduce their numbers. And then that's why I say slowly titrate back. Because FODMAP is not a long-term diet. You can't, you can't stay on that forever. It's really restrictive. And it's kind of odd. Like the things, you know, it's like why this and not that. It'd be but hard to adhere to long-term. Long-term, yeah. So you slowly start to titrate those foods back. And then you can kind of reshift. You can kind of... Sh- alter your population a little bit um that's sort of the thinking behind do you think that's why i mean anecdotally online there's certainly a number of people that have reported improvement in some type of either local gastrointestinal symptom like bloating or gas or some sort of inflammatory symptom by removing all plant foods and they're just eating um animal foods yeah is do you think this sort of fodmap sensitivity would be playing a part Mm. in that yeah. I mean, a lot of time for individuals who are experiencing a lot of the bloating, and I've, I've witnessed this firsthand, when you remove these highly fermentable foods from the diet, you can almost eliminate many of the bloating symptoms. And so plant-based foods, but it's, again, it's very personal. It's very individual. Not If you did that, if someone else eliminated all their plant-based foods, it might cause other problems right. in their body. Yeah, I mean, you do hear also the case studies of crazy diarrhea and all yeah. sorts of things happening. So yeah. it can exactly. go both ways. No, everything <laughs> is at the extremes, it never works in the extremes. Yeah. You know, It's really, again, going back to what I said at the very beginning, it's really about balance in the body. But it is true. I mean, microbes, they love fiber. And fiber is a good thing to eat in terms of creating diversity of your microbiome and in short chain fatty acid production, but it causes problems in other people. And so when the people who have come to me with that problem, when I tell them, okay, shift to a more, you know, protein-based diet, protein and fat-based diet, often the symptoms go away, but it worked for that person. It may not work for the next person. Right. And long-term, so is it a, is it a problem, you kind of alluded to it before, but a problem to restrict fiber consumption long term or will the microbiome adapt in a way where it will take those other foods whatever foods probably if they're high protein high fat they're animal foods and will be able to use those as substrates to produce the compounds that that person needs like how how much adaptability is there so there's definitely adaptability in that if you stop eating if you switch the carnivore diet and you stop eating plant foods you will lose all of those fermenty type bugs that that are adapted to plant material um, or grains or 
things like that. And you will promote the bacteria that love to consume meat-based products. And it's not necessarily that you're evolving to support microbes that are beneficial to you. It's more that you're promoting the bugs that just love that food that you're eating. It may not always be a good thing. And so fermentation of protein um, has been studied quite a bit, and that occurs in the colon. And the byproducts of, of fermentation of, of animal protein specifically um, tend to be not very good for you. Um, and I think th that could be a concern. There's a lot of sulfur components that come off of that fermentation process. It's very, they're not short chain fatty acids. Your bugs are not gonna start making short chain fatty acids from, from protein. Um, Those and, metabolites, are they, they're associated with certain disease states? Yeah, people have studied them in the context of colon cancer um, and intestinal inflammation primarily. Um, and there's literature on this. There isn't enough research in that space because there haven't been enough people to go on those diets. Yeah, I saw one study and it was, I think it was published in Nature. I think it's about 2014 or 15. Um, is it David Lawrence? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know the That's paper sort of I'm a talking seminal, about? It's like an yeah. animal-based versus a plant-based. Yeah. And, and I actually saw another a study of yours. Mm -hmm. I think it was in mice. We've, yeah. It was like a... a saturated fat yeah. versus an unsaturated fat right, i'll let yeah. you explain it but in yeah. both of those i found it interesting that well in yours i believe the saturated fat group and in david's paper the animal-based group led to an increase in uh, biophilia what's worth yeah yeah correct it, it it changes the bile acid composition when you shift to a more fat and, and mainly fat-based diet and, and protein as a part of that but um, both of our studies found this bile acid signature and the, bi the bile acids are important in the body. We need them. They help us break down and emulsify fats so that we can take them up and distribute them throughout the body. There's been a lot of research on the interaction between primary and secondary bile acids in the microbiome and research showing that conversion um, of micro by microbes of secondary bile acids creates kind of carcinogenic compounds. So you always have bile, you can change the composition of it by what you eat dramatically. So if you shift to a more fat and protein based diet, you fundamentally shift the profile to one that provides a substrate for this Bilophila wadsworthia to grow. And it produces hydrogen sulfide as a major byproduct, which is genotoxic, it, it causes damage to your intestines. So these and that's just one example of a stepwise process that where diet can shift the microbiome indirectly through changing the host chemistry. Um, and that likely happens in multiple different processes. And so any extreme will do that, but your body works fine in, in down the middle. But if you go to the edges, it will usually like push, you know, push the system in such a way that you'll get like a real skewing of your microbiome. Right. Yeah, so look, a couple things for us to double click on here. Um, I guess my first question coming, let's finish off on these two studies and your study in particular. Was there any hypothesis? What, why would saturated fats affect the microbiome differently to unsaturated? Yeah, so the, it goes back to the bile acid story. So my, and I actually had no pre predisposition on this one. I actually personally don't think saturated fats are really that bad in moderate consumption. Your body makes them, so you need them obviously. But um, 
we the idea behind this study was we were wondering in the obesity field it, the the studies that were run were based on just consuming high fat versus low fat so it was about quantity and i wanted to ask is it really quantity or is it the type of fat you consume which one is more important and so we had a like, like a low fat diet and again this is in mice and a high fat group and in the high fat groups they were all high fat but they're either saturated fats polyunsaturated fats or and then the low fat group and we did a large group but it wasn't that that was in supplemental so we wanted to ask, okay, if you are eating a high-fat diet, do either of these fats, you know, make a difference in your gut microbiome composition? And the output was intestinal inflammation, so colitis. And we found first that it shifted the microbiome, the saturated fat specifically, to a bloom of this Bilophila wadsworthia. And so then we backtrack and said, why this bug? And if you look into the genetics of the bug and what it does, it, it, it loves bile, Bilophila. So we said, okay, it loves bile. There must be something going on with the bile acid composition of, of the host in response to this diet. And we looked and we did an analysis of the bile acid composition, and it was a specific type of bile acid, toracolic acid, and it was, um, uh, uh, was metabolized to a type of sulfate. And we found that this sulfate, the bug we discovered was in blooming, loves sulfate. And toracolic acid was providing that to the bug. And the bug metabolizes it and produces hydrogen sulfide. So in that study, it was the reason why the saturated fat caused the bloom of the bug was because it was causing the body to produce a lot of this toracolic acid, which was the food for the bug. And then the bug used it and created a harmful byproduct. So it was like a, a, a indirect effect on the bug, not directly bug metabolizing the fat. Right. So if you were adopting a kind of ketogenic style diet based on that would you have a bias for unsaturated fats i'm throwing you into the diet wars i here. know i know <laughs> you can choose not to answer um, as well you know if, if i went solely off the study i would say yes okay but my study was just one example and of one bacterial interaction and a type of diet and i don't and is in mice and I think there's a lot of caveats there that, um, you know, I would say um, maybe, I mean, people, the reason why I'm a little hesitant is because people ran with this. Like when they saw it, they're like, saturated fats are bad. When we were just, you know, we weren't even, it wasn't even, it was not the highest level of saturated fats either. Um, and it's really, again, about balance. That diet was all saturated fat. No one eats a diet like that. People tend to eat a blend. And as long as you eat a blend, it's okay if it's a little more saturated fat than poly, but no one's eating a purely saturated fat yeah. diet. Yeah. Even on the that Harvard paper that I mentioned before, if I was arguing, if I was advocating for an animal-based diet and looking at that study, the diet quality could have been better. Yeah. There was inclusion of a lot of processed meats. Yes. And so, like, to your earlier point, it pro a lot of this needs to be studied a lot more. Um, the bit about extremes is interesting. So if someone's adopting a completely plant-based diet, do you think they're possibly having a negative effect on the microbiome? So are animal foods in some way actually positively impacting the microbiome? I've never seen anyone really speak about that. Yeah. I think, again, on the spectrum of plant-based. So if you're ultra-strict vegan, 
versus vegetarian, you're actually still getting some, if you're getting some degree of, if you eat eggs or you're, you know, there's, there's a gray area. Dairy foods. Yeah. But if you're strict vegan, and we actually ran a, a, another, a different study on this, um, the, the hypothesis there is yes, you're actually, just like you would if you're eating only meat, if you're eating strict vegan, you also will have dropouts in your microbiome as well because it's, it's a narrower spectrum of, of food. So the way you beget diversity is by eating a diverse diet, and that includes the full spectrum of, I'm talking about processed foods or anything, that the full spectrum of naturally available foods. So that's the stance where I start from is that diversity in the diet is really important for supporting gut health. So, but we were curious really about the amino acid composition. Um, so if you are on a very strict vegan diet and you're not conscious about the diet, you know, um, in terms of how you mix and combine your foods, you could skew towards an imbalance in your amino acids. Now, there are very conscious vegans who do this well, and they can create the full repertoire of amino acids, but not everyone will do this. And so in those individuals who are just eating what tastes good and not making, you know, conscious the, the conscious decisions, um, are they inadvertently creating some essential amino acid imbalance? And we wanted to know whether the gut microbiome could compensate in, in those instances, because what are strict vegans eating a lot of, probably a lot of fiber. When you say compensate, can the microbiome make those other mm -hmm, amino acids? Can. Yeah. It's right. interesting and be absorbed. Yeah. And be absorbed. Colon. So microbes can, can make the full spectrum of amino acids. Sometimes they use it for themselves or for a neighbor and it never sees the gut and, but they make them and they produce them. And so that was the question we were asking is, cause you don't see a bunch of people showing up to the doctor that are strict vegans with overt immune deficiencies in, in essential amino acids. So is it, we're curious by this observation. And so is it that the microbes are compensating in some way, utilizing what they do eat a lot of that microbes love, which is fiber. And so can your gut microbiome utilize, because you need nitrogen and you need carbon to make amino acids. So can you harvest nitrogen from the body, whether it's the mucosa or urea, and take carbon from what's already coming in through fiber and support the production of essential amino acids? And we're the strict vegan group was an interesting question to us, but we are more interested in parts of the world where there's overt malnutrition um, and protein. Not a lot of dietary diversity. Not a lot of dietary diversity and, and specifically right. protein malnutrition. Okay. And are you looking mostly at like leucine and isoleucine and we, we, thionine? Uh, we, we were looking at the full spectrum of, okay. the, of the essential amino acids. And is it really agnostic? Because what we then did was we looked at the bacteria that were differential between the protein low groups and the um, protein sufficient groups. And when we isolated those bugs and sequenced the genomes, we looked for what amino acids they could make, and there were a lot of the essential amino acids. And so we're still following up on those studies to actually see if we can trace the production of the amino acids into like the liver to be taken up in the body. We still don't know how much is produced and what impact that has on our bodies, if it's making a difference or not. It may not be. Um, but the bugs can produce them. They can produce other things that we need. Throws a whole spanner in the works with regards to determining protein requirements. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. And actually, I know I know you had, um, you had, had Don, Don Lehman on. on yeah. The, yeah. And we talk about this a lot and about protein requirements. And do you have to consider the microbiome in <laughs> yeah. this? You know, it's an interesting concept. Mm -hmm. Another 
I guess, topic that sometimes gets thrown up in this conversation around different foods and the microbiome and metabolites is um, carnitine and choline and TMA. And I think maybe two or three years ago, there was research that was it Rush University or uh, uh, Cleveland, Cleveland. Yeah, sorry. Uh, Excuse me. And they found an association, I think, between TMAO levels in the blood and cardiovascular disease. And then through other experiments, we're able to see what types of uh, dietary constituents could increase TMA in the microbiome, which would be converted to TMAO. this has been heavily debated. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think there's probably a lot of people that are very confused mm-hmm. about that. Um, so what's your view on TMA? Yeah. Um, so those studies, the way those studies were carried out, I have to say, were very elegant. They were very beautiful in the sense that they highlighted the chemical biology of the microbiome. Okay, I'll say that. A lot of caveats in that study. Um, and... One being that what I what I took issue with was there was a big there's a lot of language around demonizing animal based foods um, with with this study and I didn't feel that was warranted because you can consume you can I think salmon has a huge amount of TMA naturally in it right um, and they were promoting these types of you know like avoid uh, and like red meat and you know eat more mediterranean which is also conflicting with the fatty fish cardiovascular disease yeah. research which shows exactly. a reduction in risk exactly so it, it wasn't it wasn't black and white now the fact can microbes is this process real yeah this pathway is real it my, microbes do it and you know they produce tma but the conversion has to happen in the liver the tmao conversion has to happen in, in the liver the production of tma in and of itself isn't a problem until it's converted. Um, that's it. Hap- I mean, that is a process that occurs. Microbes can do it. You know, how much do you have to consume? How when does it become a problem? Is it super physiological or you know, um, you know? I don't. I I haven't really fo- there. There hasn't been much more follow up on it since those initial studies. Um, but there's no question that bugs can, this is a process that occurs. Yes. It comes back to, to the causation correlation versus causation piece, right? Like, has it been definitively shown that TMAO is causal in cardiovascular disease? No, no, that in and of itself will not cause cardiovascular disease. Again, it's one of these very heterogeneous things. Um, like I said, you know, is the microbiome going to be a driver in certain diseases, or is it going to be a secondary synergistic effect? This is it falls in the category of potentially synergistic to every other lifestyle factor that you may be participating in that contributes to heart disease. So I think that if you are doing all these other things wrong and you have high levels of TMAO, then it could be a problem. But that in and of itself causing cardiovascular disease, I'd be hard pressed to Right. Yeah. I think another piece of evidence that I saw that sort of made me think it might be a bit of a red herring was there was some genetic data, Mendelian randomization data looked at people with elevated TMAO levels mm-hmm. or TMA meant didn't seem to increase their risk of cardiovascular disease. Um, okay. I guess. I think they did a follow-up where they looked at people who then had cardiovascular disease and then looked to see if they had high levels of TMAO. And, and I think they did, but again, it's a 
reverse causation sort of thing but it's compelling it's interesting but you know i like how you built that study up and complimented it before you crushed it that was nice <laughs> because there are, some, <laughs> there are some aspects of that study i teach from ex an experimental design standpoint um in that it, the experimental design from a you know animal and things like that were kind of it was kind of a nice way that they tried to show this um that i would say there's some bigger more splashy studies that leap over all these other steps um, just to get to point Z, so. Okay, tell us about inflammatory bowel disease and the things that your research lab's interested in looking at. So IBD, IBD is two diseases. It's Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. Um, and how prevalent would that be roughly? Uh, it, gosh, I wish I had the stats off the top of my head. Um, it's. It's increasingly, so in, in Western populations, it's, and in, in populations that are Westernizing, it's on the rise in, in, a, in a massive way. And that's actually a very interesting um, uh, fact that people are studying. People who migrate from China or migrate from Latin America and come to, uh, come to America and start eating and participating in our lifestyle, their risk for IBD goes way up. So it's considered a disease of modern, kind of modern lifestyle. Um, and um, it's, it's a chronic inflammatory disease. It can be diagnosed as a child, pediatric, or as an adult. Um, there's strong genetics behind it that have been defined, but not everyone who has the genetics will develop it. Um, and it's, it's largely multifactorial. So no one thing will cause IBD. It's usually what we call it, it requires two, two or more hits. So if you have a family predisposition to it, and you consume a diet that might be pro-inflammatory, um, Western-style diet, and we can talk about that. Then you go into a high-risk category: family history and, you know, a, a, what I might call a dysbiotic microbiome can put you in a high-risk category or other immune factors. So, it's sometimes considered there might be an autoimmune component to it that's still unclear. Um, but the way colitis and Crohn's manifest are quite different. Um, so you kind of study them as two separate diseases. Um, but you go through periods of flares where you have a, you know, stress can induce a flare, a change in diet can induce a flare, and then you, it's relapsing and remitting. So you relapse, you have a flare, and then it goes into a quiescent state, and then it'll flare again, and it'll, that's the nature of, of the disease. Right, so dysbiosis, let's quickly define that. Gosh, um, I don't know that there's actually a definition for dysbiosis. Um, Out of whack. Yeah, it's just. But it's it, not normal. Not not normal for your normal is okay. what I would say. So right. my dysbiosis might not be your dysbiosis. So that's a really important caveat. So anytime I use the term dysbiosis, I define it as it's dysbiosis from that person. That makes it hard to characterize in a study unless you're measuring relative exactly. changes. Exactly, exactly, which is why you have to be really careful the word's thrown around a lot. It's a convenient term, you know, to describe just this bucket of abnormal situations of microbiomes. But it really, it, 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 it is not one thing. There's no definition of dysbiosis. You know, it's not like you have a bloom of this bug, therefore you have dysbiosis. It doesn't work like that. Also makes me wonder if when early in our life at age one, two, or three, should we be 
understanding our microbiome signature so then we can track it over the course of our life i mean that would be amazing (laughs) you know i think many parents are just trying to get some sleep at night exactly it's not top of the list to think about collecting their their diapers i think is (laughs) that might be a business idea out there for someone yeah um i'm not sure whether i want to (laughs) to put that out into the ether and be responsible for that but um i'm sure someone's probably looking into it um okay so these two different forms of IBD. Yeah. So there's genetic components, but do we think that the uh, the microbiome is primary, like along with the genetics in terms of triggering yeah. these conditions? Yeah. So when it, the most compelling data we have on this is there are germ-free mouse models of, of colitis. Um, and they don't develop colitis without a microbiome, but their conventional counterpart that's fully colonized will develop over a colitis. So, and this, been, this has been done in many, many models of intestinal inflammation. Without a microbiome, they don't develop inflammation, even though they have the genetic predisposition and everything to do so. And if you add microbes back, they'll develop the, the colitis. So it's even in a mouse that's very black and white um and so that's been a lot of our our evidence for this and the fact that in patients you know there's often like signatures of certain bacteria that tend to be prevalent when you have flares or when you have disease um and so there's almost and people are starting to identify the metabolites that are being produced and taken up and interacting with the epithelial intestinal cells in the gut um but it still is a lot of associations you know we haven't yet found a microbial directed therapy that targets that one organism that will eradicate everything so it's it still is there's a lot more to do but there's in the in the ibd field um there's no argument that the microbiome is a critical factor in, in okay. disease but there's no interventions currently that have been shown to modulate the microbiome in a way that would either improve their symptoms or potentially reverse yeah. the condition? Not, not in a systematic way. So not in a, certainly not in an FDA-approved therapeutic way, um, unless it is for a very specific condition of C. diff colitis, which is a pathogen-induced form of inflammation that people will get it over and over again and no antibiotic will get rid of it. Then, So you can give a fecal transplant. And the fecal transplants which I'm happy to talk about, um, do an amazing job for recolonizing the gut and eradicating that organism and causing complete healing of the intestine. Um, And we still don't exactly know what is in the mix of poo that is doing it. We just know that it does. And there's now an approved, you know, there's approved stool that, you know, clinicians, they can ring up the stool bank and say, I need some, this much stool for this patient. And they get a capsules or they get a, a tube and they administer it and it works amazingly so that comes from someone who does not have ibd and that's that's fair that could be an option for anyone with ibd or or only someone no. with a specific strain yeah it's not it's not in the u.s allowed to be used for any other type of ibd other than recurrent c difficile infection um, so people are studying it for sure in terms of Crohn's and colitis and more like, um, you know, non-pathogen based forms of the inflammation, but, um, it's not, it's not FDA approved, but it, it doesn't seem to, so the, the main 
readout that we look at is engraftment. So if you give, you know the person starting microbiome, you give a stool sample, is that donor stool sample actually engrafting and, and, and colonizing the gut? And that's a major readout. And the data is equivocal in IBD if it's engrafting or not. And it's likely because the host isn't as diseased or in as bad a shape or an antibiotic treated state as the C. diff colitis person. So they don't have as many open niches to put a, you know, for a bacteria to colonize. So, um, but people are looking at, okay, what if you intervene and get pre-treat with diet first, you kind of prime the gut with a supportive diet, and then you give a fecal transplant or post-transplant supportive diets. There's a lot of interest in that. Um, and that might apply for even beyond fecal transplants, whether it's a probiotic or something like that. Is there supportive diets to go with that? To help those organisms yeah. either take residence or just produce more metabolites? Yeah. yeah. Right. So if you were to hypothesize, or is there any data that perhaps has looked at this, why the increase in prevalence for IBD? I think you mentioned pro-inflammatory foods. Is that the, the, the biggest change in, in the environment or are there other aspects of our lifestyle outside of nutrition that you think are at play here? Yeah, there's a lot. So there's many people studying this and some large scale human studies looking at this. And I can, they're actually pretty interesting studies. Um, we don't know the mechanisms yet. We have lots of hypotheses and speculations. Um, there's one large study I'll mention that's actually taking place um, between by a group in in uh, Melbourne and um, Hong Kong, my hometown. Yeah, uh, St. Vincent's Hospital. Yeah, I, I know. Think, it. Yeah, yeah. And there, it's called like the East West Microbiome Study. So they are looking at Western populations. So I use air quotes, and in Australia and in Asia, so Hong Kong being that, and then in rural parts of mainland China. And what they're actually looking at is food additives. So they're actually, they actually believe that food additives are contributing in, in Western type foods, which you don't see in more agricultural environments, are contributing to the rise in IBD. And I actually think there's some compelling data behind this. And there's some good microbiome research showing that certain components, certain components of processed foods can drive blooms of certain harmful bacteria. So they're doing this in a human scale across continents, and it's a very large scale study. And they're finding certain bacteria that are different between these populations that are known to be increased in IBD. And so they're starting to put together the pieces. And there's many studies like this that are looking at populations from Cuba and the Dominican Republic coming to Miami, and they can compare these populations. Um, so diet is largely what it, people are pointing to but slight, probably some combination of change in lifestyle more sedentary convenience and then the types of foods that they're eating okay so food additives i think people will be wanting to know what they've observed so far what are the are there components that they've been able to isolate that they are kind of putting at the top of the list as these could be the contenders for um sort of uh, most impacting someone's risk of developing a condition like IBD. And, and maybe while we're at this, we can talk about the non-nutritive sweetness. Right. <laughs> so we don't have a hierarchy yet. Everyone, you know, we're kind of taking agnostic approaches and looking at different factors and what rises to the top. In the case of the study I just mentioned in um, 
the human study between Australia and China, they're kind of looking at what's in the foods that are being eaten, and then they will develop a hierarchy from that that study. But they're taking an, an agnostic approach. Um, in the studies that have been published, an example um, that I thought was a particularly nice study where they looked at triolose, which is a component, it's kind of a s- sweetener um, that's added to things like um, like Taco Bell meat, you know, which why would you put sweetener in it? But it creates the flavor profile of foods that, a lot of foods that we eat. And they found that triolose um, can promote the um, growth of that bacteria C. diff, Clostridioides difficile, that can cause colitis. And so if you, for example, had a, a, a predisposition, a family history, a predisposition to developing Crohn's or colitis, you would probably want to not be consuming triolose in your diet. No Taco Bell. Not Taco Bell. <laughs> I used to go to Taco Bell when I was a kid. I mean, <laughs> we, all, you know, we all did. I did too. Um, and so, but if it's a part of your regular diet, if you have one taco, it's not a big deal. But if you're eating it as a part of your diet, it's going to be a problem. So, um, and there have been some other studies with dietary emulsifiers, um, lecithin, I think. But they, a lot of the, and I think there's one with a food coloring but they're one-off studies where they've been looking at one component, and there haven't been a lot of repeats of these studies. And a lot of them are in mice, so I will say that. Um, and so whether a mouse processes it the same way. Is- As, do they tend to look at exposure levels that you, you feel are generalizable to humans? A lot of studies will be using superphysiological levels of mm. the component to test. Makes it know? hard, right, for the, yep. to look at that and then say, am I going to buy this? I don't know, almond milk that yeah, has yeah. an emulsifier. Right. Because you have to not only like look at the dose you're giving it, but you have to say, okay, this is per mouse. I'm a human. How much per my body weight would I have to be consuming? So you almost have to start doing the math. I mean, usually in papers, they'll try to like make the human connection, and but not always. And so you have to do the math and remember that you're not a mouse. And so what the amount that might kill a mouse or cause inflammation may do nothing to you. So it's always a matter of, you know, be cognizant of those, you know, the amounts that are being studied. This might be slightly outside of your wheelhouse. Maybe this is more of a question for a practitioner, but I'm I'm sure you've thought about it. If someone had IBD or has IBD, what are the, the, the top recommendations for, I guess, supporting their microbiome? Yeah. There's, as of yet, no straightforward, you know, recommendations. I actually recently gave a talk, um, it was in February, to a a group of uh, fermented food seminar series. And um, I think I I saw that. Was that with with Stanford or with the Sonnenbergs? Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I... I didn't know, so I interviewed a bunch of dietitians at, at, at Cleveland Clinic, at, at Penn, and ours at Cedars, and, you know, everyone had different, you know, there's, there was no one recommendation that they could make to, to their um, patients, and it really depended on that person's individual type of IBD. Sometimes they recommend a low-fiber diet, you know, because maybe they have a lot of bowel issues like constipation and th- or diarrhea. Um, and others say, no, that's not, they've actually asked them to consume more fiber. So it really depends on, they view the patient as an individual and then give them recommendations, but there was no one recommendation that they would make. Let's slide on over to metabolic health and obesity, uh, diabetes, I guess fatty liver, they all kind of fall underneath this same bucket of, of metabolic health. I think in this country, it's about one third of adults who are obese 
and I think it's almost 75% are overweight or obese. And it's placing people at a higher risk of developing type 2 diabetes and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, etc. I've been really interested recently reading a lot of Roy Taylor's work. I'm not sure if you're familiar with his. He's a, a scientist out of the UK and he's run these big trials like the direct trial and um, counterbalance and counterpoint. And these are looking at um, interventions for people with type 2 diabetes um, to see how you can sort of get them into a state of remission. Long story short, he has this model called the twin cycle model. And essentially his model of, you know, why people get insulin resistant and develop uh, type two diabetes is that um, we're consuming in excess of calories or we're in an energy surplus, which could be affected by the diet and how much we're moving. It leads to excess fat, and at some stage, it leads to the accumulation, particularly of fat in and around organs, this visceral fat in the liver and in the the pancreas eventually, um, to a point where that person develops insulin resistance, and then when their blood sugar gets to a certain level, they're diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. But the visceral fat being a really important part of his model, and then he kind of goes on to explain that there's a thing that he describes as a personal fat threshold. So... That is essentially his explanation for why you could have two people that are obese or overweight, but only one develops insulin resistance and diabetes. They have a bit more of a, um, a, they're more susceptible or they're storing visceral fat earlier for a given body Mm, weight. So they have less capability to store fat subcutaneously, basically. That's his kind of overall um, model, which I think, makes quite a bit of sense then you look at his intervention trials and when he gets people to lose 10 or 15 percent of weight um if they haven't had the condition for too long a lot of them do get into remission now whether they can sustain that long term that's a different question um i think most of the long-term weight loss data is shows that most people regain a lot of their weight but i guess so i've been very interested in that and then having you coming on the show today, I was kind of interested in how the microbiome might be feeding into this, whether it's feeding into energy balance by affecting appetite or satiety um, or other ways. And I think you alluded to something before. Um, is translocation, is that the word? Yeah. Right. So maybe we can kind of talk into how you think that, and I know you said it's probably not a primary mm-hmm. um, um, sort of candidate for why people are putting on weight but how do you think the microbiome could be involved in people gaining weight yeah so you know the the early jeff gordon work from the early 2000s um was focused on the microbiome harvesting more energy from the diet that we're eating so two people eat the same burger person a consumes you know can can take up 95% of the calories, person B can only take up 80% of the calories. And theoretically, and then attributed it to the energy harvesting capacity of of the microbiome. And I think that um, a lot of the field has really focused on that aspect of the microbiome contributing to weight gain. Although there hasn't been a lot of research on this beyond those initial studies on the energy harvesting capacity of the microbiome. So I think we don't really know that what it's doing in that regard and whether 
that still holds up or not. We do know that the microbiome contributes something like 15 to 20% of our daily caloric uptake and, and needs. So and that's coming mainly through like short chain breakdown fatty of fiber and, yeah. and production of short chain fatty acids. That's interesting. So on nutrition labels, is that included within the calorie count? No, I mean, fiber usually doesn't, you know, it's a, I mean, they do count fiber in the carbs, but when you don't, it's not a insulin spiking carb. So if you're counting carbs, you usually subtract out your fibers, but in terms of calories, I don't know if that's ever been necessarily taken into account, but it's, and it might vary for people depending on what microbes they have. Yeah, I, I've read, and this, I'm not sure how well studied this is, but I've read per gram of fiber, you get two calories oh. instead of four. Okay. I don't know if you've heard of that. It may, it may, I don't know. I mean, it may be, <laughs> that may be true. I know there's some nutritive okay. value to it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's converted and, and it's, it's largely, from the short chain fatty acid production. So, um, so that's one aspect, still a lot more work needs to, they need, the field needs to revisit that. In our work, um, it's, it's different. Um, what we are looking at, and that's what I call the indirect effect of the microbiome on weight gain through energy harvest. We are actually looking at bacteria interacting with fat cells and fat tissue directly. So we first observed that in Crohn's disease, because we study IBD, there's this really interesting visceral fat phenotype that occurs in patients um, where the, the mesenteric fat, which is the, the fat that attaches to the intestine, somehow knows where the inflammatory lesions are on the inside of the intestine. We don't know what the signal is. and migrates, so it expands and migrates and wraps around the intestine, right where the lesion is. The fat cell. Yeah, it's called creeping fat. Wow. And surgeons, when they go to cut out the disease part of the intestine, they look for the creeping facts. They know that's where the inflammation is located. So how does fat on the outside know where inflammation is on the inside? There's some communication system going on there. And this has been a, a phenomenon that's been observed for like 100 years. People know it exists in the IBD field, but we're just sort of like, oh, that's interesting. So we were curious as to whether microbes were that signal to the fat. And because with chronic inflammation, you have barrier kind of disruption and so-called leakiness, um, we started to see if we could culti cultivate bacteria from the fat tissue. And we found we could cultivate up to like 40 different species from visceral fat um, outside the intestine. And so, so the bacteria mm -hmm. is getting outside of the colon, yeah, getting inside fat cells. Yeah, not inside fat. We don't know if they're inside. We're actually looking into that. They're into the fat tissue, so in between, in the interstitial space, gotcha. in, in between. Right. So it's in, embedded in the fat tissue. And could it be intracellular? I don't know. We're actually trying to figure that out. But where we do see it definitely is in between the cells. So, but but fat cells actually have receptors for bacterial components in them. So they can sense the presence of bacteria in, in the mix. So how they're getting there, I mean, the fat is attached to the intestine like through a continuous membrane. So they it's not like they're getting out of the gut and then going outside and then into the fat. They're actually going through the bowel wall into the fat tissue in some way that we don't yet understand. So what we find is once the bugs are in the fat tissue, the fat tissue responds. And there's this really interesting 
um, term that I like called reactive adipogenesis. So the fat reacting to the presence of bacteria and essentially serving as the body's band-aid. So it is like it's saying, hey, bugs, you should, you know, you don't belong in the fat tissue. Where are you coming from? Instead of letting you just pass into the rest of the body and into the bloodstream, we need to go and plug the hole. So it's serving like super glue for the intestines. And so when we look in the blood of our patients, we thought we would see tons of bacterial products. We couldn't, they look no different than healthy people. It was all like contained in the fat tissue. And so the fat then expands and grows and wraps around and takes on these pathological features because the body can't clear the bugs from the fat. They go there, but they can't get rid of them. So the hypothesis there being the body is protecting against this fat. Yeah. It's the body's, the fat is protecting yeah, the body. Right. But then in terms of linking that back to maybe weight gain or obesity, is that the hypothesis that therefore the, the body doesn't want to metabolize that fat? It's sort of there to to stop this bacteria from entering the body? So um, so that's the question we're asking now. So we're curious as to whether this is a phenomenon specific to IBD or is it true in fat expansion more broadly? Right. And um, we t so if you look in other organ systems, you look at fat that wraps around the heart um, and things like cardiac fibrosis and pathologies of the heart, often there will be an expansion of fat that's independent of obesity. Around the kidneys, you have expansion of, uh, of uh, retrorenal fat and the patients have the worst outcomes for kidney transplants. I talked to those transplant surgeons, they say they had the most fat around their intestines. So is there something protective that fat's not just this energy storage place, it's, ac it's actually trying to, it has a functional role on the body that is protective but can turn pathogenic in, in certain instances. So in obesity, we were curious as to whether translocation is happening in normal states. And is it certain bacteria um, that are getting across into the visceral fat and causing specifically visceral fat expansion? We're not talking about sub-Q fat. And we know in metabolic diseases, visceral fat's the problem, right? But we have no way to selectively target visceral fat. You know, weight loss is, is weight loss. You know, you get sub-Q and you get visceral, but you can't say, I want to just target my visceral fat. Could it be a, there's a way to target it from the inside out um, by targeting microbes from going into fat tissue? So we act, that's why we're doing the bariatric surgery study right now to get fat tissue and gut from patients undergoing obese individuals undergoing gastric bypass, they don't have intestinal inflammation. You know, they don't have IBD. So we're trying to see if we can get bugs out and what are the bugs and what is the tissue doing. Right. So at a root cause level, mm -hmm. trying to stop the bacteria from from getting outside of the colon into that interstitial space. Does that come back to the tight junctions and the intestinal permeability piece if if that is the way they are getting across so they might there could be other avenues there could be other avenues interesting yeah. can you tag a, a microbe and kind of see where it's traveling you can yeah you can tag microbes um we actually have done that um where we have um more so than the dynamic tracking because it's kind of fixed in in time you know we get a sample and it's fixed in time we can stain these microbes with probes that turn green when mm. if they're present. how do they feel about that <laughs> i think they're dead at this point but um we actually have taken the fat tissue 
and looked for the the green spots to light up and we see the dots you know in the fat tissue so the bugs are there but we see them co-localized in certain parts they're not spread throughout the tissue they kind of migrate and aggregate in these areas where the immune cells are so i don't know what's chicken or the egg is it the bugs go first and then the immune cells or is there some dynamic we don't we don't yet know the answer to that okay what about short chain fatty acids and hunger hormones is that anything that you've looked at like glp1 that's obviously a bit of a hot topic yeah at the moment. yeah so what i can recall i'm not as up to date on this um there was a study now maybe eight years ago showing that propionate short chain fatty acid propionate um and this is independent of glps but um could induce satiety so it gut produced propionate would somehow trigger you know a, a satiety hormone that caused people to eat less so there's a lot of discussion i think there was maybe an attempt to make a product where you could sprinkle propionate on your food and therefore it would make you yeah, feel i think fuller. i saw that yeah it was like inulin propionate or something yeah i don't know how like whatever happened of it yeah. yeah what came about but um that's so in terms of the satiety that was one of the only things i've seen there are people saying GLP-2 in the gut and the effect of short-chain fatty acids. So Li Ping Zhao at Rutgers has done a lot of work in this space. Um, a lot of it is mouse work, but in the context of diabetes. And the work is compelling, and he's showing that you know short-chain fatty acid production can stimulate GLP-2 um, and mitigate some type 2 diabetes responses in mice. Fascinating. What do you think about GLP-1 agonists as a drug? You know, I think um, they've been worked on for, they, people have been going after this for a long, long time. Um, and I, I think there's probably something to it, but, you know, I think the jury's still out. Okay, so let's bring this home with some practical uh, advice. And there's been a lot sort of scattered throughout this conversation, but maybe we can kind of try and summarize things. I think you made it clear at the, the beginning that the microbiome testing might be the cart might be a little bit ahead of the the horse at this stage. Um, but what are the kind of top line bits of guidance or tips that you would give to someone just looking for general general advice, ways to nourish their microbiome and, and get their microbiome composition such that it is supporting their health? Yeah. So just to revisit the microbiome at-home testing um, point, um, I don't think that there's no utility to those. So if someone's curious about their gut microbiome composition, and I applaud anyone who, who is, um, you can't necessarily go to your doctor and ask for it because they may not do it. Or So if you, you really want to know, you should do it. Now, the, I just want to make a couple caveats is if you do, many of the companies will offer nutrition advice along with it. I would ignore that at, at the current stage. There may be a day where your microbiome can predict what diet you should eat, but I would say um, use the testing company for the microbiome data. I think that might be news to some people okay. because they might they might have, I mean, some of the marketing suggests mm -hmm. that the personalized advice is going to be better mm -hmm. than the general advice that someone might get. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I mean, I've been doing this for 18 years. I couldn't tell you what diet you should eat based on your microbiome composition. It, the data is so all over the place. The cohort studies are still too small. And often the recommendations that 
you are given from these are either obvious or completely random and they don't explain why, you know? Um, and, and companies are trying, there's, there's new iterations of these and they're trying to do better. And so I applaud, I, I applaud the companies that are trying to do this, but the real value is actually in the microbiome testing and that information. And so if someone is like, okay, I'm not, I, I don't have a problem yet, but I'd like to know what my base, where am I starting? I think everyone should be doing that. I think a microbiome test should be part of everyone's baseline. You go get your blood drawn, you get, it should be a microbiome test as well. Um, because if a day comes where you become really sick, have a GI problem, have sur GI surgery, have chronic antibiotics, and you want to know what you've lost, you can go back to your original report and see what you had before. And your body ultimately wants to have what you had before. So it could give some clues as to what types of probiotics to Exactly. Take. Uh, maybe a customized probiotic, mm. which may be more realistic. Mm. And I know there are some companies that are, that are trying to do that. So, but if you're going to choose an at-home testing kit, try to do research on, you know, go on the websites and see how much information they give you about the methods they use to do the analysis. If they use metagenomic sequencing, I'd say that's a better one um, than, than 16S. But try to just know, know what it is and then stick with that kit. Like don't jump around to different kits. If you want to take a measurement today and in a month and next year, try to stick with the same method. That's great advice. You know, I think that's important. Okay. Um, so, um, so yeah, so that's, that's one thing. Um, other practical advice? Yeah. So from a, let's, let's go through some of the, the general tips. Maybe we, we, we close the loop on nutrition yeah. to start with. So again, I, you know, I can't emphasize enough a diverse diet. Diversity begets diversity. It's, it is, a fundamental principle of ecology and evolution and our gut microbes abide by that law. And so um, try to introduce as much diversity in your diet of, you know, natural things, plants, but also animal products. And if, and if these things are available to you and for any other, you know, diet, you know, health restrictions or religious restrictions, assuming that all things are equal, try to eat as much diversity as possible. Um, and plant different types of plants are always good as well as Rob's study have, has shown. Um, so under then that banner of diversity, um, we do need to eat more fiber in our diets, but what kind of fibers you know, do we eat? Um, it's, it's kind of tricky, you need diverse fibers as well. And that's a really important point. So just, and I think there's a lot of confusion around what diet, what fiber is, is what, what's insoluble, what's fermentable, what's bulking, what's not. And the terminology is really obscured. When in doubt, just consume different types of fibers and you'll get your bases covered. Eat Metamucil, eat your spinach, eat your quinoa, have it all. And you'll, you'll, you'll be fine, you know, but have diversity. Don't just eat the one thing. Um, and those are, as far as what we know as universal truths, that's pretty much. And what about it. beverages? So next to that, all of that food, yeah, what are we washing that down with? Yeah, beverages. <laughs> we know far less about liquid, liquid nutrition in our, you know, what does water, what does coffee, what does soda, all that sort of stuff is still a big black box. Obviously, the thing that's probably been studied the most is you know, like sugary drinks and or non-nutritive, you know, like diet drinks, right? If you extrapolate from the non-nutritive sweetener studies. And again, I, it's all about moderation. It's not rocket science, you know, for the body or for your microbes. And is a can of 
full sugar soda or diet soda going to kill you? No, but most people don't just stop at one and that's the problem. So I think the artificial sweeteners, I don't, I don't have an issue with artificial yeah, sweeteners. Yeah, we didn't hit that. We didn't. We but, said we were going to. Yeah. But in a, in a nutshell, <laughs> you know, I will just say, don't run away from the artificial sweeteners, but don't run toward them either. It's about, you know, it, I always, I'm always nervous about, so what's the alternative? Okay. If you're not going to consume artificial sweeteners, do you go back to Coke again? I think Lane Norton makes that, like, that's one of the central part of his arguments here. And I think it makes so much sense. Yeah. Like you got to think of the global picture when you, it's easy to put out recommendations and say these things, but what is the alternative? And are you, is, is it saying that now it's better to just eat 40 grams of sugar in your soda versus a diet one? I mean, that's not good for you either. So then are people going to just start drinking water? You know, I don't think people are just going to go cold turkey off the sweetness and start drinking water. That would be probably preferred, but people can't do it. And so it's striking a balance and being cognizant of what really is physiological and what really is having in, an impact. And not all sweeteners are the same and they're all different. And yes, we need to do more research into them. They are a food additive, but um, we still don't know enough. And it's not, don't, don't be afraid by. Do you drink coffee? I do. Okay. Yeah, good. a lot. <laughs> uh, do you put butter in it? Oh, I, you know, I have before. Yeah. I don't mind, but I don't well, mind like the bullet coffee. you did mention saturated fat before, so yeah. I thought maybe that's why you didn't have the coffee. No, well, out. was there, is that in there? Oh my gosh. Okay. There was no butter in that one. But. No, actually, I actually <laughs> think the, the, like the, I think, what is it? Bullet coffee or, yeah. um, is actually really good, but it's not for everyone. Yeah. Okay. Coffee makes me think about, uh, polyphenols, chlorogenic acids. Uh, are you interested at all in, in polyphenols and how they sort of interact with the microbiome? So there's been very little to no work on this. I've been interested in them from my nutrition background and, and just their impact on the body. But, um, it, it'd be really interesting to start studying that in terms of the microbiome. Um, how much would you have to consume is what, you know, do the microbes metabolize them? You know, I think there should be some work on that. I think it'd be really cool. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about supplements. Yeah. I went into whole foods around the corner from here the other day in air one. And as a, a consumer, I think you would go to the shelf of prebiotics and probiotics and probably be pretty confused yeah. pretty quickly. There's a lot happening in that space. How does how do you feel about these supplements in general and how would you recommend someone kind of navigates it? Yeah. So when you say supplements, I'm thinking about pre and probiotics primarily. There's things like digestive enzymes. Those are all good. I have nothing against digestive enzymes. I think you they probably have some benefit, but specifically the microbial-based supplements. Um, so I'll, I'll start off first saying there's a lot of marketing gimmicks out there. So women's probiotics or men's probiotics, like there's no there's no sex specificity to your to your probiotics. A bug is a bug. It doesn't care if you're a man or a woman. So usually they maybe they add additional things that you'd find in a women's supplement and combine it into the probiotic. I guess that's okay. It's one pill, but it makes us feel better though. It, you know about I the mean, purchase that it's, it's more, more personalized. personalized. <laughs> it's more personalized, yeah. <laughs> but they'll charge you extra. You're paying like 10, 20 bucks more right. for it. I, you know, it's so. Then if we just talk about probiotics in general. Um, I kind of alluded to this earlier that there may be a utility to probiotics, um, but rational use of probiotics. So there were um, 
me and my colleagues and clinicians for the longest time said, if you take antibiotics, you should take a probiotic afterwards, normally reconstitute your gut. And then these papers came out of Israel, I think in 2017, 2018, something like that, that changed the whole paradigm for how we look at probiotics. And they actually showed that taking probiotics can delay normal recolonization of your gut, which kind of was like, whoa. And it was really beautiful, beautiful data. And so... And then there were some other other issues of probiotics in terms of labeling that have been problems with the industry, but that's slowly being mitigated. Um, so now the now people are recommending after antibiotics, just again eat a diverse diet, let your body be naturally recolonized. It will within a couple months time go back pretty much to its normal state. So don't mess with the probiotics. But going back to let's say you've been you've had chronic UTIs. I know there's women out there. Chronic UTIs, you're on antibiotics constantly, right? You're eradicating your gut microbes or in any other condition where you're on chronic antibiotics. You likely have wiped out certain beneficial bacteria. So that's where sequencing can become beneficial and figure out what you've lost. Let's say you've lost all of your or specific strains of your lactobacilli or your bifidobacteria. You can then go to the store and buy a probiotic that contains those bugs. And then that might actually engraft and, and help promote your gut health. But you don't know that unless you know what you're missing. And most people don't have that information. So they just go and it's confusing and they buy the one that either has the most bacteria in it or is the refrigerated one or is the most expensive one or, you know, whatever the combination is okay. and makes their best. So guess. start with trying to understand what strains you need. That's in a perfect situation, okay? If you're not gonna do that, but you still wanna take a probiotic, what do you do? Okay, so I, if I had to make recommendations on probiotics, I would say you want a probiotic that has a prebiotic in it. So the pill is not just the bug, it contains some fiber in there to help not just introduce the bug, but give it some support, right, to grow. So prebiotic, probiotic com combinations, probably a more prudent, prudent formulation. Um, and then, yeah, the CFU count, the colony forming units, how many billions of those you need a lot. I mean, you've got like wait, 48 to hundred trillion bacteria. You're taking 10 billion at, and expecting that to have an impact out of a hundred trillion. It's like, I always say it's a drop of dye in the ocean, right? So you go, go with the highest number that you can get and you got to take it regularly. That's the thing. So it, the minute you stop taking your probiotic, it'll quickly become outcompeted within a matter of days. So if you want your probiotic to really have a chance, you gotta, I mean, if it says take three huge pills, three times, you, you gotta follow the label and you gotta take them consistently and that's key. So um, if you wanna take them, take them, but there are some ways to do it that are okay. better than others. And prebiotics. Yeah. I think there's a like whole, the whole bunch of, well, I just mean prebiotic supplements in general, yeah. like as a standalone. Yeah. There's, you mentioned sort of Metamucil. Mm -hmm. There's, um, I think, kiwi fibers seem mm -hmm. to be quite popular. There's some resistant starch products yeah, yeah. like green banana and potato. Yeah. And there's these, like agave, yeah. agave inulin is really popular. In yeah. Europe. So like, are these potentially beneficial for people? Yeah. I actually think pre, I would definitely choose a prebiotic over a probiotic. So if you're wanting to support your good microbes and gut health, rather than trying to take the bugs and hope they colonize, you already have, most people will have those bugs in them. They just might be in low abundance. If you want to get them to grow, you know, and feed them, take the pro prebiotics. 
pretty much any one of them will do the job. Um, and if you can do a combination of them, like I said, you know, combine your fibers, because fiber is a prebiotic, um, buy a couple of them and take them. That's your best bet. Don't don't mess with the probiotics, but I would invest in the prebiotics. And I know that you're a fan of fermented foods. Yeah. What are your favorites? You know, I um, I love kombucha and dairy. Uh, so from the Gardner and Sonnenberg studies, when they actually broke down the fermented foods, I know we didn't talk about this, but the fermented foods that had the most effect on inflammatory profiles in terms of reduction, it was dairy-based fermented foods and um, fermented like vegetable brine, they call gut shot. And um, gut shot, you can buy at Erewhon's. It's and it's not the best tasting thing, but anyway, you can you can buy it. But it's also probably like a hundred dollars. I know <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, but like kefir, you know, yeah. Greek yogurts, any of the kind of. But you want to watch the sugar content of of these. Some of the the dairy yogurts that have that are fermented might have some sugars in it. So find the ones that have the least sugar. But those are the ones that they found had the most effect. I personally, I love kefir. Um, I have it. I make protein shakes in the morning with kefir, Greek yogurt, berries, and protein powder, um, and uh, and kombucha. I love. I know it's not for everyone, but I just drink it throughout the day, just as a option to a, a diet soda or a coke. Mm, me too. Outside of nutrition, what else can we be conscious of? I did read one of your papers on Irish travelers. Yeah, that yeah, I found quite yeah. interesting. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that was a commentary on a, on, a, on a paper that is very interesting that came out a couple years back. So in that paper, interestingly, um, what they found, this, this is a nomadic group that had to be forced into. Super interesting. I did not know about that group. I didn't either until I, I had to do, write this paper, but really interesting. Um, and so I thought it was diet. You go from a nomadic diet to being forced to be in one place, your diet's going to change. And they had these shifts in microbiome where their microbiome started to look more Western with forced housing. And what they actually found, it wasn't diet at all. It was um, the number of siblings or people they were cohabitating with. Um, and I think proximity to animals or pets. So there's natural reservoirs of microbes in our environment. So if you live, you know, you live with a partner or roommate, you tend to have more similar microbiomes to them than to a stranger on the street. So there is something about we repopulate each other. So you want to be careful. Lots of kissing and hugging. Yeah. (laughs) So it's, you know, it's interesting to think about could you acquire someone's unhealthy microbiome or could you give someone Be very careful about cohabitation yeah. it's like when you're dating someone do you need their microbiome sequence you know also in advance i think tinder need to look into that yeah it's, that should it, be disclosed it's an interesting concept but yeah this concept of environmental reservoirs there's been there's actually a study i, I sometimes talk about where they looked at couple couples who live together and roommates who live together and then non-related people and they asked them to characterize their relationships in terms of intimacy how close that how intimate they characterize their relationships and those that were the most intimate or self-reported as intimate had the most similar microbiomes than people who were just roommates or who were spouses but maybe were less intimate so physical contact is really important and we know this from babies when babies are born it's that skin-to-skin contact with with mom that they acquire a lot of their microbes as well. So, yeah, it's an yeah. interesting concept. That's I saw some recent data, and this is 
slightly unrelated, but there could be an overlap looking at social isolation and risk of mortality. Mm, yeah. And being socially isolated, there was like a 30 or 40% increased yeah. risk. Now that's an association and it could mm-hmm. be explained by many things, but sure. maybe the microbiome is part of that. Yeah. Who knows? That's a, I never thought about it. That's an interesting concept. Okay. So that's, that's sort of community, cohabitation, yeah. food. Is there anything else, exercise or being yeah. outdoors? I mean, people are studying exercise. People are studying sleep, you know, um, and how that affects circadian rhythms and the microbiome. That's kind of a emerging hot area right now. I'd say the jury's still out um, in terms of how the microbiome either regulates your sleep patterns and vice versa. Um, but I'd say keep an eye on that space. Um, and uh, in exercise, people have been studying it. I would say um, there's a lot more work that needs to be done in this space. But you, I mean, I ha- would have no doubt that an intense exercise, cha- it changes the oxygen tension of the body and therefore the gut and might transiently affect the microbiome. Almost certainly, I wouldn't be surprised. Or marathon running, you know. Um, but we don't know what's transient and what rebounds and what's long-term um, and what's beneficial or not. So I'd say the jury's still out on mm. that as well. Susan, this has been extremely interesting. Thank you so much for making the time to, to come down. I'm really interested to see your work on, on the fat cell kind of microbe interaction, that piece and, and what comes of that going forward. So I'd love to have you back on it at some stage. If folks listening would like to kind of keep up to date with your work, keep an eye on some of those things that we've discussed or connect with you online, where should we send them? Yeah, you can um, reach out to me on Instagram, uh, just my name, Suzanne Dakota, same on Twitter. Um, and yeah, you can reach out to me. It might take me a minute to get back to you, but I will get back to you. Um, and those are probably the best routes. Beautiful. Yeah. Thank you so much for making the time to join us today. Yeah, thank you very much. There you have it, friends. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did and want to stay up to date with future episodes, be sure to hit that subscribe button on YouTube and follow on Apple or Spotify. Finally, thank you for showing up and the effort that you're making to take control of your health. I look forward to hanging out with you again in the next episode.